I'm recording. Okay. Um, so that was the issue that Paul. I uh, the sound is going to be trouble. I'm <clears throat> Sorry, I can't hear you very well enough, probably. I wonder if we turn the video off. Mm. Can try. Can stop the recording too, I guess. That's that's better. Can you hear me? How about me? Am I good? Yeah, you're better. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That's well, not we can what try we usually this, do, but let's try it for a while. Okay. Well, I, I, I really enjoyed your conversation with Paul. Um, and you said something about, um, you know, when I talked with him and I raised the whole conversation about um, postmodernism, you thought the... Um, he was having some good videos after that, and and I sort of agreed because I I really liked the the areas he's been exploring with regards to Christendom and you know I, I suppose the connection between Christianity and cultural power is something I've been increasingly interested in, and I wonder if if that's if you sort of um, agree with that. Um, you also had the the David Bentley Hart article where you were talking about, um, you know, the, the sort of the violence of, um, of demonstration versus a sort of apologetic of rhetoric. Um, and I, I thought that was, that was, um, th that really connects to the, this larger conversation I'm, I, I've been interested in. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think it's, it's puzzling to me, frankly, as to, as to how, how um, Christianity, what role Christianity plays in these conversations. And both from the perspective of seeing the culture, um, you know, kind of where it's at, as maybe exemplified in these uh, Eric Weinstein conversations, and, and also where uh, you know, how Christianity, the voices of Christianity appear in the, in the culture and what kind of standing they have and, and what all of that, how, how you would paint a picture of all of that. And then, and then what you would, what you would say was uh, the right posture, let's say for a Christian voice. I don't have answers to those questions, actually. And um, I, I think it's, but I think it's interesting. And it's, it's almost like Paul is, is probing on this question. Um, and he's trying, he's, he's, I don't know that he has the answer either, but he, he finds it, he finds the conversations that let's say Eric Weinstein has very intriguing. And, uh, but he wants to make sure he does some version of a deconstruction of it to open some space for a Christian voice, but at the same time, I'm not sure he thinks that there's a posture or a figure or a, um, a, um, a role that makes sense for the Christian to play in that. And that's evidenced in his, in his immediate turn to, to the discussion of Andrew Root's um, um, 
kind of mm. pastor's response to the secular age, which was the very next video, if you remember. Um, and I, you know, I started yeah. him kind of talking about that a little bit, but I'm not sure where that goes. I just find that to be kind of the space that Paul has wandered into, and I'm not quite sure where you go from there. But hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's so it, it's sort of the question: What's um, the stance Christianity is trying to take within the current? secular possibly post-secular context um what is the role christianity is supposed to play and i I, you sort of see a whole bunch of different responses to the current moment you're in where you know if um you sort of see a certain certain group of christians sort of trying to recapture a cultural dynamism um, from a bygone era where where there's this attempt to sort of restore some kind of a Christian civilization. Um, and give, how, give, me how, an I, example, give me an example of someone trying to do that. Who? Well, I, well I, I sort of think, um, you know, the Christians allied with, I think that's, that's what's completely behind the sort of make America great again stuff. Oh, okay. Is, yeah sort of return America to its Christian roots. Right. Um, and a question I have is how does that sort of um, make America Christian again or bring back Christendom, how does that connect to the secular age? Is that sort of the same conversation? Are you sort of getting the what I'm trying to say? Is, is um, you know, it, when Charles Taylor talks about us being in a secular age, isn't that something like, um, isn't that something like um, Christendom? Because, you know, the sort of, uh, the sort of bygone era um, that people want to return to is this, um, great American enlightenment that was, you know, the constitution and um, that whole era is, is in a way the secular age. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm being entirely clear. Maybe you can sort that all out. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, I think there's all these cross pressures. That's a, that's a Taylor phrase cross pressures um, that I'm, that I'm seeing you kind of point to. Uh, and I'm not quite sure, actually, the answer to that question. But yeah, I do see what you're. I see what you're saying there. That there's, that there's a harking back to a, an imagined origin of, let's say, the the United States uh, a birth through the the you know the Puritans coming over to find space. Um, to, sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. I just oh, want to throw something in, oh. and I, I I guess my point is. In a weird way, the I sort of see the new atheists um, and someone like Steven Pinker being almost aligned with that project, though they'd want to take it in a bit of a different direction, I guess. It depends on how far you think the Make American Great Again position thinks of itself as going. How, how far do you think it wants to go? I, I assume you don't think it 
although it does seem to have an unspoken desire for the uh, theocracy. Um, but maybe you don't see it as wanting to go that far. If, if they were saying, look, we all bought into the, the separation of church and faith and, and state. We yeah. all bought here. I'm speaking now from the, the, my proposal as what you're referring to as the make a American great position. If, if what they are saying is, Hey, look, way back in the beginning of the constitution, we all agreed that there was a, a clear separation of church and state and that there was going to be an open commons and, and that, that religion would have religion and, and non-religion and atheism and, you know, all, all parties, as long as they played by the rules would have open access to this open commons. And you, and you, um, you are now, uh, you've now changed the rules such that a, you know, a kind of a, a religious community is being squeezed out of that open commons because of your both subterranean and overt suppression of, of, you know, believing communities. And we want to reestablish our quadrant in the open commons. If, if you're, if you're kind of saying that, then I would say, yes, I would say, yes, the, the, the new atheists are arguing for an open commons. They're perfect. I, I would assume in their more sober moments, they would say something like, yeah, sure. We're, we're open to everyone being able to express their own faith as they please, as long as they don't impose that on others then I think they're mm -hmm. both in the same place. It, it depends on whether you think the great make American great types have an, have a, have an agenda that's, that's more moving towards a, a vision of theod a theocracy and then maybe Okay. Yeah. Here's a, maybe uh, this sort of, um, I'm sort of thinking out loud. So this is why this is all incoherent. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. Mine, mine as well. <laughs> <laughs> so here's another way of thinking about it maybe is you could sort of say you, you sort of distinguish between the sober moments of the new atheists and their less sober moments i think in their less sober moments and this goes with the making america great types there's a sort of theocracy that both want where um it's like let's make a great christian nation on one hand and the other is like let's make this great secular society where nobody is religious and where everyone is just, um, you know, believes in science and, and follows, uh, you know, maybe meditates on the side or whatever. And I, I think there's, there's the, I think the, why I'm connecting it to Christendom is that both have this, um, while being aligned to this um, enlightenment separation of church and state project, they both have this sort of um, implicit um, totalizing impulse where there's this need to make the whole society conform to one story. Absolutely. In fact, everyone... that, was, that was exactly the turn I was just about to make. Whereas on the, um, and, and you expressed it very well. Yes, I think that's the other version of it is that they're both having their own version of a totalizing vision. And, and that's perhaps more where we're at. Is that what you were, you were saying? 
I think, I think, I think, I'm, I think, yeah, I think that makes more sense. Like, there was this law in Quebec, um, I'm not sure if it came through or not, not too long ago, where um, they were wanting to sort of banish any religious symbol from the public square. Like, people can't wear crosses, they can't wear turbans. And, and that just seems to me like a sort of secular theocracy trying to set itself up. Um, which seems to me to represent the sort of totalizing um, story. Like we, we can't have competing stories in, in this society. We need everyone to be part of this one great secular story of progress and, and science or whatever. Yes. Yeah, it does get, and this is where it gets confused, confused and confusing in my own head as to what I would I myself would want or whatever, what, what would be the, because I don't, because uh, mm -hmm. that sets up a class of clash of civilizations right there. I mean, if everybody's, and there, and maybe both sides are not fully conscious of their own totalizing impulse, uh, but they're ready to battle on those lines. Um, and what's the outcome of that going to be? And uh, I don't, um, I don't, so, yeah. I guess, I guess um, this is taking it a bit in a, a bit of a different direction, but I think you'll see the connection. I think this is where we get to David Bentley Hart's um, rhetoric versus apologetics, mm -hmm. um, right? Where, where he sort of sees apologetics as, in a way, violent because it sort of um, wants to impose let me let me read something from a paper here which which i think tries to express this um hold on um here both natural law and natural theology allied in what i'll call apologetics presume the possibility of a demonstration of christian truth and and you could probably you know um throw something else in here, right? It could be, um, you know, the new atheist vision or uh, you know, Buddhism or, or whatever, because they presume a universal neutral reason as the basis for proofs. And it is precisely this presumption of a universal or common reason that makes possible not only the demonstration, but coercion. Apologetics, I would suggest, is always the thing to, to coercion because of assumed justification or warrant for Christian belief that is susceptible to universe, universal rational demonstration. Therefore, if the hearer is of such, of such proofs, fails to receive or believe them, then the hearer is at fault. Then the hearer is at fault, has just opened herself to the charge of being irrational, and therefore is actually in need of coercion in order to do what is good or right. Um, so I, I think that's sort of the argument um, Hart is trying to make when he's promoting um, when he's promoting rhetoric over apologetics. I, I think you're absolutely right. Who who was that? Was that you or no? That was um, James K. A. Smith. Ah, is, in... wrote a paper where he was sort of actually walking through the the exact same uh, book you were reading and, and ah. sort of. Yeah, I just read. Uh, I just read. Finished with uh, his on the road with Augustine, uh, 
just just recently. Mm. I, I'm I'm liking him uh, um, um, as a as a new new uh, figure for me to dive into a little bit. What um, would, that was a essay or a a review of of yeah. uh, the beauty of the infinite. Yeah, that was an essay where he's, I think he sort of um, critiques art in some ways and, um, and, and interacts with his work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've really enjoyed um, James K. Smith as well because he's just an excellent popularizer of, of some, some really tough, uh, you know, some, he really popularizes some, some difficult movements for me, like... Um, he, he had this book on introducing radical orthodoxy, which I read mm -hmm. recently, and, and it's helped me to get a bit of a foothold onto what, what it's about, and maybe I'll be able to actually read some of the, the texts for myself. Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate other stuff of his. I, I would say, just turning back to, well, first off, the point that, you're, that you uh, um, raised with that quote is, is very aligned with with. Uh, with at least that introductory part of uh, the beauty of the infinite. I've got to say that reading uh, David Bentley Hart is 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 confounding to me. Um, hmm. That the beginning of that book is very lucid, and I really I really like the way he started that book off. But by the time I got halfway through it, I was I I, I was lost. And he is he's uh. either he's either in a a kind of an uh, a language uh, and vocabulary domain that I'm just not familiar with and therefore I can't quite follow him mm -hmm. or else he's he's unnecessarily obscure and and so I I really didn't the the, the yeah. kind of follow through on that book was not as successful for me personally as this at that as that beginning was and the beginning really drew me in and I sent you an email that included that and I think he makes those the, a lot of those points but the point that uh, James K Smith makes is is right on there um, I think it goes a little bit further in that, in that I think what Hart might be arguing for is, or he fleshes out that rhetoric side, that, that rhetorical side. He says, you know, he, mm -hmm. he talks about how, uh, how perhaps we might uh, um, embrace that as our mode of, of, um, of interacting and, and presenting and, and, um, and understanding. Uh, yeah. Things. But, um, but, but the, the starting point is exactly what James K. Smith just said. Yeah, I mean, when you when you um, when you uh, mentioned his book in the, the conversation we had a while back, I was I, I, I thought you know I should I should dive into I should dive into David Bentley Hart, but too many books, I guess. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, now we're, now we're, now I'm intimidated again. Um, he's, yeah. he's he's he can be a quite difficult person to read. He seems to be. He, he, his vocabulary seems unnecessarily complicated a lot of times. Right. I'm reading another book of his called um, "The Experience of God" right now, and for some reason, so far, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm maybe 50 pages in or something. It's it's been the most clear book I've read of his, despite it being such a um, complicated topic to write about. So I, I was surprised by that. I'm I'm not going to give up on trying, but it but it was uh, anyway. I liked I like the guy. He's everyone's got their own personality quirks. He's a bit of a he's a bit of a uh, sarcastic <laughs> guy in some ways that can be annoying. And I know that Paul uh, I think Paul highlights that about David Bentley Hart a lot. But 
that doesn't bother me so much. I can get past that. And, uh, and it's, he's very, artic very articulate when he speaks. When I, th I think his, uh, a number of his YouTube videos, one that I was just listening to on, on this beauty question, uh, very, very illuminating, I think. Oh, oh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I remember trying to watch one of those a while back and I, I just couldn't figure out what he was talking about. Maybe <laughs> if I gave it another go, it would work this time. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing that James K. Smith is, is a good resource that way because he's much, much clearer. Oh, yes. And I know I don't have, I, I, you know, I think there is something that, that we could argue that maybe we throw David Bentley Hart's argument right back at him and which is that, you know, skilled rhetoric has, has to include at least some valuing of clarity you know clarity is one of the values that you should try to <laughs> try to aspire to but um just to uh, i mean, i found um david bentley hart is that can actually be incredibly um clear and um well spoken on certain topics if you sort of know a bit something about the topic he's talking about and then you read one of, you know, if you read a paragraph he's written, just summarizing something important, it's, he can be astoundingly articulate and clear and precise. And uh, so, so yeah, he, he does have that side. I, I, for some reason, he, <laughs> yeah, he does uh, it in fits. And in his, yeah. Yeah. He does it in fits and starts. That's why when I first cracked open the beauty of the infinite and I started reading, I was like, Oh man, this one, this is perfect. This guy's, he's just really talking right at the issue. And I, I really, uh, uh, like what he's saying. And that goes on for the first, maybe, you know, 40 pages or 50 pages. And then I just, I don't know, maybe I just didn't give it a chance. And maybe I should try it again. But the very first part is very clear. And it says, it says exactly these things that we've been talking about in a very articulate way. And he introduces his, his kind of notion and definition of, of postmodernism, and that's pretty clear in there as well. And, mm. um, and there's some good things there for sure. Okay. Now back, but back to what we were talking about. What do we do with? What? Yeah. What, what were, where were you wanting to go with this notion? I mean, I, I. Anyway, I'll let you take the lead. Well, I guess we sort of um, managed to. I think this is the point I was trying to make with Paul is how this. Um, how sort of the, the apologetic or natural law project is aligned with a political project um, in some ways. And, um, and this is, this is to me something that's really interesting about Kierkegaard is how he has this, um, this notion of truth that, especially when he's talking about Christianity, he has this notion of truth that, uh, that is not that is not object that is sort of not objective, not universal, not um, autonom autonomous. He's resisting this notion of um, a sort of neutral autonomous reason, and then at the same time he also has this um, this quasi political vision in his attack upon Christendom, and I think the two are connected, where. On the, on the one hand, his critique of this sort of objective autonomous reason, which undergirds this, um, this political project, his critique of one needs, leads naturally to his critique of the other. So his critique of autonomous reason is also a critique of this, um, 
totalizing uh, this totalizing political project. Uh, so, so I guess this this just connects to um, you know the, this discussion about Christendom and postmodernism, where you have this decline of uh, you know this this one unifying Christendom, this one unifying Christian story, which sort of u- unites the, the the whole society and then is um, supported by um, by our apologetics and our um, arguments and, and these types of things. And with postmodernism, you sort of have the breakdown of, of both a grand political vision, a grand unifying story, and as the idea of autonomous universal reason. And you have competing stories um, coming up. And that's, I think, the space where we find ourselves in at the moment where we have competing stories and competing, um, uh, competing stories with, with their sort of own internally coherent rationalities. And whether that is sort of philosophically defensible is one question, but I think that's the, the sort of cultural reality we're in at the moment. And that's why you have, um, like we mentioned, movements like sort of Make America Great Again, which is this, this attempt to get this unifying story once again. Um, yeah, what do you think of that? Yeah, I, I, you know, I agree. I think you can paint a picture of, of, uh, of Christianity um, over many, many decades to centuries modeling for everybody else as we approach the present age christianity modeling the very fracturing that you're talking about so you know we move from the from the from luther to the ever repeated uh uh schisms that protestantism uh presents uh, it uh, to the world and uh and that's just uh, you know, kind of like a uh, an example, uh, very a f- kind of obvious example of what's happened in the culture more broadly, where all the stories are are um, you know only 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 speak um, from within their own uh, you know kind of practice and world and uh, cul-de-sac of the of the whole culture. Um, and and then here we are. I think that that is as one description of of what the postmodern is. You you do throw in a little twist when when some of those cul-de-sacs uh, frame their worldview as totalizing, and then it's a political. Then you start to raise what you've been talking about the the, the political because then these these worldviews mm. come into you know they come into conflict. You know so. Um, and, and how that plays out, it plays out in the marketplace of ideas. And, um, and who knows where that ends up, but you certainly can see uh, examples in, in uh, I guess I, I guess I saw, or you said the Benedict option, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the withdrawal 
uh, I don't know if the I don't know if I understand the Benedict option, but still, the um, you know that 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 group that Paul and and uh, and Jonathan Pajot are going to go meet with in somewhere up in Canada. There, um, you remember um, that group? No, no, no okay, never heard of it. Um, anyway, uh, but anyway, it's it's a kind of like a, a Protestant monastery kind of thing. And and the guy was speaking about his 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 group there. It's in uh, I can't even remember the name of the place. I'm sorry, but um, they're they're trying to not evangelize. They're trying to just have a a Christian community that fits into the culture without trying to make anybody in their their reach Christian. And they're just trying to be Christian to mission in that community to care for the people in the cult in the in the in that surround them and that they can reach to help but not mm -hmm. expect any kind of evangelization or or um um you know kind of spreading of of, of christendom from there and they're just ex just having faith that the that the that the christianity that they model will will be enough of an example um okay uh -huh. and and they're trying to build a, a little Christian monastery that are, I think they call it a monastery. Um, and that's, and that's, that's another a, response. That's a non-totalizing response, right? That's, a, that's the different, the counterpoint to what you were trying to raise about the, the anyway, so I'll yeah, stop I mean, there. I mean, that's, that's pretty much exactly what um, my own Hutterite community has been um, up to since, since the, the Reformation where, there's this total rejection of um, of engagement in politics, and this creation of these sort of uh, countercultural alternative political communities, where we live in community of goods. Um, in uh, if you wanted to be a bit provocative, you could call it a sort of proto-communist um, commune type of existence. Um, and this this outright rejection of all forms of violence, and with that that's the reason why there's no political engagement because the political is seen as you know having the monopoly on violence, and you can't participate in that as a as a Christian. Um, so the Hutterites have sort of been doing something like the Benedict Option, and uh, you know since the 15th century, and I think. Um, my own perspective, and this is something I said in the comment section as well, my own perspective, you know, as a Hutterite and as someone influenced by Kierkegaard, uh, is, is, I think, um, influenced by that Anabaptist vision, which has always been critical of Christendom, I guess. Um, huh. That sounds refreshing, and it's not something that I really knew about the, the Hutterites, so that's, that's intriguing to me. Um, I, I think it would be my in, it would be my intuition as well in in how to if, if you want to say it this way how to be a Christian uh, that would be my mode I think in in the idea yeah 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 um, it, it does have its downsides of course because right. you sort of um, give up any you know people people arguing for a sort of political engagement will argue sort of, um, you know, the political sphere does need its, 
it's Christian engagement in order to have a positive impact. Um, right. I, I mean, yeah, say yeah. Christians are supposed to be opposed to war. You could always have those voices within the political sphere who are sort of speaking out against, um, you know, uh, the next big war or something. So, so that's, yeah, more, that's the type of thing. People. In my, in my, in my case, I, I would say to people around me that I'm, a, a, that I don't think Christianity should evangelize, but I really mean that more for myself. I mean, I, I want to <laughs> be, because I know that somebody needs to do it, you know? So yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to grab, I'm going to let that be someone else's calling in a certain way. But, uh, but I just kind of feel that my own Christian yeah. notion is really makes that not the right move for me. If I'm, if I'm caring for someone, maybe in particular as a physician, it, it isn't in, in any way um, uh, about uh, a doctrine, an idea, even a vision of Christ in my head or anything. It's, it's not about any of that. It's about caring for that individual. And in that, reality is you know is is christ and i don't need to do anything other than that and in fact it would be wrong to do anything other than that in that moment so um uh -huh. but i but i also i see on the other side of that i see that you know it's it's not it, it is the case that some people need to be reached out to and brought into uh, a community and come to learn a new faith and 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 there's many people helped by that and, 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 uh, you know, some people hurt by it, but many people help by it. And so someone needs to be doing that stuff. <laughs> it just doesn't turn out to be, mm -hmm. to be me. I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel it a similar way because, um, yeah, it is, I, I would have a very hard time, uh, doing evangelism in a, in a direct way because, I, I sort of wouldn't be exactly sure what to say, I guess. Um, like, right. um, and I, I think that's something which our current post-Christendom context makes more difficult because in a context where everyone is at least nominally Christian um, and, and sort of shares these basic assumptions at some kind of a level, um, you can, like Paul always says on his channel, you can sort of go do the door-to-door -door thing, go door-to-door -door thing and ask, you know, if you die tonight, where are you going? Um, that would only be possible in a, in a nominally Christian setting where everyone buys into the same story at at least some kind of a level where this person who doesn't have, um, who hasn't sort of reflected on this story, you know, maybe was raised with it and sort of uh, just uh, no longer thinks about being a Christian. He could be possibly reached by, by that kind of a thing, but it doesn't, I think you need, I think um, you need some kind of a different indirect form of evangelization, like the community you mentioned that does this, um, that lives in this attractive way, which is attractive to people seeking, you know, authentic, um, you know, authentic selfless lives. That that type of community would be very attractive to um, to all kinds of people. So that's a sort of indirect mode of evangelization, which 
would be easier for me to do, I guess, than, than any, any kind of direct evangelization. Yeah, I, to I totally uh, agree with that. The, yeah, I think that does go to maybe Charles Taylor's description of the, of the secular age. And that is that the very notion, uh, the very, you know, kind of deep notions of, 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 you know, any kind of religious belief, but certainly Christianity are problematized by the fact that we live in a culture in which, in which those kinds of assumptions are not at the base. And so any, you know, any proposal of one kind or another has to find itself against that backdrop, that backdrop of, of, you know, a presumed or naive secular uh, humanism mm, yeah. as, as the, as the default, as the, as the unquestioned background. And so, and so in a certain way, this is, this, this maybe takes this in a little bit of a different direction, but in a certain way, it pushes every community that has a, a counter position to become apologetic because they have to, they have to construct mm -hmm. an explanation of their, of their belief. It, it, the, the one great example of this in Paul's universe there is Sam uh, as a, as a Unitarian yeah. uh, knowing more about the Trinity than mm -hmm. all the other Christians. So every, the, the, the way of framing this in that Charles Taylor way is um, all, all these, all these Trinitarian Christians are naive Trinitarians. That is to say, they, yeah. they just, they just accept that as, as the case, but they never really thought about it too deeply. And then yeah. Sam being a Unitarian, he's, he can't be a naive Unitarian because mm -hmm. he has to construct some sort of elaboration of that. And in, pro in mm -hmm. the process, he has a deeper knowledge of the of the trinity than do the oh, yeah. trinitarians so that okay that's good so yeah. that that's good, sam good. is a great a great kind of model if you will for this 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 charles taylor like idea okay i i would actually um that's that's brilliant yeah i love that but but i would push back against the idea that these sort of outsider groups um you know engage in apologetics because i think you know, Sam sort of can't be an apologist for Unitarianism because he's such an outsider. Um, he he has to sort of subvert the, the the Trinitarian narrative in an indirect way. And if he became too direct in his, his rhetoric, um, you know, like he, he sort of gave the example of him being uh, pushed out of the out of his church just for his views becoming um, becoming public. So he has to sort of, um, he can't really be too upfront about his beliefs. He has to sort of keep them on the hidden a bit. And this is, this is now, the interesting thing. Let me step in here real okay, quick. Okay. Apologetic may have been the wrong word there. The, the, the people, the, the marginal, uh, um, let's say, the religious trying word. to hold on to their um, 
trying to hold on to their faith in the, in the secular world, they don't necessarily have to do apologetics, but they do have to construct a rationalization and an explanation and a, and yes. a much more elaborated um, kind of belief structure that, 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 that uh, stands in contrast to that. Whereas in the past, they could just be naive in there. I, I don't know if that clarified that. But. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, being an outsider gives one, uh, like you mentioned, an interesting sort of double vision where you become familiar enough with the outsider view um, so that you have an outsider view of your own tradition, which, which gives it this non-naive um, element, like you mentioned. But on the other hand, the fact that you're an outsider to the, 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 the homogenic um, you know, prevailing narrative, that gives you an outsider's perspective of that as well. So you can be, you can sort of see the flaws of the, outs of the, of the prevailing narrative in a way an insider can't, and you can see the, the problems of your own tradition as, a, as, as an outsider in the way, um, you know, a sort of true believer can't. So you have this weird, um, I, I'm sure some experiences this, this weird, uh, standing in two different places at one time. Uh, yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the point I was trying to trying to raise. You 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 said that well. That that's, that's yeah. That's I suppose that's cross pressure. Is, right. is would be Charles Taylor's word. Yeah, exactly. And and the question, the one question, and I kind of half brought this up with Paul in my talk is that what is that? Um, are we at a at a at a moment where the the tide is shifting a little bit where secular, the secular humanist um, uh, hegemony is now to some degree problematized. And it now yeah. has to, it has to start to formulate, it, it, feel, it, it feels the uh, uncertainty of its own foundations and therefore it has to now start to construct, um, you know, kind of rationalizations and explanations and defenses and, and, um, mm -hmm. And that opens the field yeah, that's, for a broader conversation. That's, that's a good, I, I love the point you made, you made in the conversation about the new atheists being the apologists of the secular. Um, it makes you think of, take this insular religious community that, um, you know, let's say they don't believe in evolution or something. And when somebody pops up in that community who is like, um, who starts questioning this and says, you know, um, they've, you know, what if the earth is maybe older than 7,000 years or something? The, the immediate reaction of the community won't be to, um, you know, do apologetics. The first, the first thing they'll do is, is to sort of um, try to shame this person into silence, right? You'll, you'll have, oh, are you crazy? Um, you know, the Bible says this, what's wrong with you? You, you won't have actual engagement with, with, um, with these minority outsiders. You'll just have this sort of shaming, quiet, trying to quiet, trying to sort of um, press it, you know, um, press down the, the resistance with, with, um, with, with the force of, of social um, stigma, right? Sure. That's the first, when, 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 the, when the threat is just small enough so that that, just might work, but when the community comes into, um, 
you know, starts to engage the secular world more or has people popping up, more and more people popping up within the, the community that, um, that, you know, maybe believe in, in evolution, to use my example, they'll have to start um, to have apologists of their view. They'll have to start creating their Ken Hams within the community who can argue for the position that is now coming under threat. So in that way, apologetics serves as a way to defend the narrative. And I just love the idea of, um, hmm. I mean, it's interesting how apologetics functions if you compare it to something like theology. Theology, in some forms, this isn't completely true, but um, heuristically, theology sort of functions as thinking um, rationally about the tradition from within the tradition. But what apologetics does is it takes an outsider perspective and tries to defend the tradition from the outside, um, which is sort of like um, engaging um, the critics on their own terms and trying to defend your tradition from their perspective. Yeah, yeah. Here's a, here's just the uh, kind of wild idea that just popped in my head about that. And I've heard people say this and see if you have heard this as well, that that the, the arguments for the existence of God, you know, the cardinal ones that are always brought up, the ontologic, the cosmological or whatever, um, when they were formulated by people like Augustus and Aquinas and, and Anselm, were not were not proposed, they didn't come in a context in which they were, they were efforts to, to convince people or to demonstrate the existence of God. They were in a theological context. They were trying to make mm-hmm. theological points. And we only look back on them now. We only deploy them now, apologetically, because we need to do that now, or we, Christian apologists, deploy them in an entirely different mode, if you will, than they were actually yeah. initially uh, uh, presented, and which is a kind of bastardization of, of what they really originally were intended for, uh, but it shows you that and, transition that you're talking about, which is theology is a, is a kind of uh, comfortable, uh, uh, enriching, uh, uh, um, let's say rhetorically beautiful, um, uh, elaboration of our generally accepted and comfortable faith, and uh, and then it becomes something else when it when it faces the the uncertainty of a world that needs uh, that begs for a, apology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, um, and, and and but theology can in a way be uh, apologetics, which refuses to. Um, to speak of the reality you find yourself a part of on, on the terms of the secular, where, you know, a, a theological vision will try to articulate the, this, this beautiful world you find yourself a part of um, from within and sort of draw, you know, um, in an in a indirect way, argue for, for this tradition, this reality, from an insider's perspective, 
um, you you know, it's, it's a sort of like like Hart says, it's it's rhetoric versus um, you know versus apologetics, I guess. Yeah, he uses the term dialectic as the as the opposite of rhetoric, but yeah. it's the same idea. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I think all that is um, all that is very interesting. I'd like to I'd like to um, bring in uh, what I what I, I learned from from reading James K. Smith's book on radical orthodoxy, and it, it's such an interesting movement. I try to I'd like to sort of try to lay out for you what that movement is about, just to throw it into the the larger ideas we're describing here, because it's it just connects so well. Um, would you be interested in that? I guess. Oh yeah, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I just looked up. I'm just looking up the book right now. I'm, I might have to read this. Yeah, it's it's a it, it was a pretty clear introduction for me. So um, I, I don't know if it would be so easy to just jump into the radical orthodoxy text to begin with. Um, so so what radical orthodoxy tries to do essentially is to, um, in a postmodern context, to recover pre-modern resources, pre-modern resources from the Christian tradition, in a, um, but not in an uncritical way. So it's sort of a brute recovery of pre-modernism, but sort of bring back a pre-modern vision to um, to challenge the the to challenge the, the sort of um, secular narratives of today. And they formulate um, what the project is about uh, in terms of um, ontology, epistemology, and then politics. So um, they sort of set themselves in uh, opposition to, to secular um, to the secular uh, political realm and to this, the notion of a secular autonomous reason and instead post, um, um, try to articulate a, a sort of Christian version of, um, of politics and epistemology. And then they tell this, uh, this story of, of philosophy that starts with, um, that starts in pre-modernism where you have this unity of the sacred and the secular, this unity of, of God and earth, where there's this idea of, um, of all of reality participating in God. And, and they have this, um, this way of putting it, um, things are nothing in themselves. Um, they're nothing in themselves, but, but only become something in their participation in God. Um, does that make sense? So, um, like, things are nothing in themselves. They, they sort of can't exist um, in an independent, autonomous way. They can only be something in participation with God. So there's this um, this absolute, inseparable unity of um, of the sacred and secular. That way, the, the two can't be disentangled. Um, and that's sort of the, the pre-modern view of the world, where those two spheres are completely intertwined. Um, and then 
And then they sort of bring in the figure of Scotus, who, um, who has this, this new ontology where he, he basically turns God into a being among beings. And, and, and if, you've, if you've read any heart, this is sort of something David Bentley Hart is always talking about, how God is sort of beyond being and he's not just a, a mere um, being. He's not the biggest being among beings. He's, he's, he's the ground of all being. And this yeah. is what the the radical orthodoxy people are talking about. But Scotus has this this ontology which has um, which turns everything into um, being, and uh, and then you start to have this creation of this secular space where things in themselves you can sort of know things independent of their connection to God and you start to see have this separation of church, uh, you know, of, of the secular and the sacred um, in both epistemology um, because the theological and the, and, um, and, a re, and, uh, and sort of autonomous reason are separated. You can actually now, you have this creation now of this autonomous um, independent reason, which can sort of know things in themselves. Um, and that also leads to the creation of a secular of a secular political sphere, where, you know, like we were discussing, this autonomous reason um, governs this this secular sphere, and they they sort of see postmodernism then um, as beginning to critique this notion of autonomous reason um, by, by sort of arguing that's, um, that there, there can be no such a thing as, you know, um, just pure autonomous universal reason, which is sort of, which doesn't, isn't embedded within a story. Um, you sort of need some kind of, you, your reason always, you always sort of reason from within a tradition, I guess. Um, and then the radical orthodoxy thinkers will argue that um, the, this, this vision of the secular leads inexorably towards nihilism because, um, because you're, like, we, like we said when we were talking about ontology, these um, because nothing, everything is, is, is nothing in itself. Like, um, to try to sort of have something autonomous without its connection to God is to try to sort the, the thing is, is nothing in itself. And, and this sort of leads to a nihilistic picture of the, of the universe. And, and the radical orthodoxy um, figures will argue that materialism in sort of only valuing the imminent, the disregarding the transcendent, ultimately devalues the material because the material can only be valued with its relationship to transcendence. And so they'll, they'll sort of um, argue for a, a radical materialism where the material is rehooked to its connection with the transcendent and that gives it a sort of depth and um, and and um, and and firmness, which 
which a purely materialistic vision can never um, can never afford, I suppose. Uh, yeah, that, that was excellent. That was excellent. <laughs> I, yeah, I would say that I'm going to resonate with this a lot, and I, I, I'm not. You know, my own kind of uh, witness of my own own faith has has I don't know. It's like a mirror image or something of what you're you're talking about there mm. because I, I kind of, and I, you know, again, as you're more, uh, uh, I think knowledgeable of the broad notions that are in Kierkegaard, but I take this, I take one, a few things out of it and I use it for my own purposes, but I attribute this to Kierkegaard, <laughs> which is the radical subjectivity of our, of our experience. But what I take that to ultimately mean is that the ground, uh, I would start with some, this is going to sound, I don't know what it sound like. The ground of, uh, of all is, is experience. The ground of everything is, is, is experience. And any kind, of re, any kind of rational reconstruction of that, of any type, is ultimately going yeah. to be derivative and second order. So the ground of experience, the ground of all being is, is, is our direct experience. But our direct experience is of of this has this subjective nature. So it's, it's, it's gravitas and it's reality is elevated because it's my own because, because it's, it's got that, you know, kind of potent, um, re, um, um, importance that comes from it being mine. And that of course is shared by all. So it's, so it's not, doesn't turn into a kind of solipsism there, but it, but it, forms the 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 it, it, it creates a circumstance in which i can feel i believe the sacredness in the ordinary the sacredness in my own direct experience and that and that sacredness and that experience has a has a kind of defined uh let's use a jonathan Pajot term it has a defined pattern it has a it has a it has a whole logos to it and it is very direct and accessible to me as, as, as uh, a kind of materialist would say, we have direct access to our own, to the world. But I mean that as, mm-hmm. as, as it being expressed in that whole uh, 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 narrative of, of, of our, uh, of our lives. And that it is, that it is in that very um, grounding that you can see these these uh, uh, that that are instances of the universal. There are instances of the transcendent, and and therefore the the nature of a let's say a Christian narrative that that um, that uh, shows that to me or mirrors that to me is is just a reiteration or a just a a, um, a drawing out or a, a presentation of that very direct sacred, uh, experience um, to to myself or to my community or to my uh, to my um, I, um, oh, I, I, I I got to be babbling there but um, <laughs> uh, yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like I want to come from slightly the other side of the radical orthodoxy that is to say from this notion of my direct experience my own own uh, my, the thing that's own most to me but 
but but ultimately end up in that same place. Ultimately end up realizing that that direct experience has all the the um, all the substance of that bigger story and therefore connects me to the the transcendent transcendent there you go um you'd have to i'm going to ask you some questions to have you flesh that out a bit um i'm sure that's going to help because i don't think i fleshed it out very well um are you sort of saying the 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 christian story is the pattern of your experience um or or something you the, the your experience is expressed in the pattern of the christian story is it something like that or um, yes am i getting that, that's one way that's one way to say it sure i, I i'll buy that <laughs> um okay uh it, it, so does that is that very similar to sort of the you know, Peugeot's um, conception of, you know, consciousness coming, you know, our experience of the world coming before, you know, like you said, you know, our experience, we, ex we, we don't sort of have direct access to the material world. The material, the, the world is mediated through this conscious patterned experience and Maybe I'm maybe I'm projecting just um, Peugeot's ideas on you on what you're expressing, but um, um, the Christian story becomes the pattern of experience, or maybe I, I might be reading you wrong. Yeah, I I I don't know if I completely undermined your little um, con um, description <laughs> of radical orthodoxy there, but um, gosh, I don't In, know where radical orthodoxy would be doing something um, quite different from that, I think. Um, because radical orthodoxy would sort of want to prioritize the idea of revelation as giving you something that, um, you know, in, no, neither our phenomenological experience, nor our empiricism, nor our rational apprehension of the world could give us. So that's why it's, it's, um, it's it's a it's sort of you know it sort of says that in the name like radical orthodoxy is this um you know right does that sort of make sense it's uh, and it sort of says that um you can't sort of add to the to the christian story um via rationality because it's so qualitatively different um and that would be sort of their critique of partly behind their critique of the the notion of a secular autonomous reason i guess go, go through that one more time what what if, if if what what are they what is the revelation if it's not the categories that you described um okay what would be an example of how this plays out um I guess what they're trying to do is describe the world in a um, in a in a sort of orthodox Christian way, and you know if if we go to the vision of postmodern as these competing stories, what radical orthodoxy is sort of saying is 
we are part of this story, which can't be, um, you know, proved by secular autonomous reason because um, they would argue that there is no such a thing. And they would basically say, um, we are, we're, we're basically saying that, you know, the secular autonomous reason leads ultimately to nihilism. Um, and the only alternative to nihilism is the Christian story, which can't be grounded rationally, but it's the only one that can sort of make sense of our experience. Um, um, but you sort of can't get there rationally, I guess. I don't know. Does that make sense to you? Well, if that was what they were trying to say, I probably would have a gap between me and them for sure. But I'm going to read that mm -hmm. book for sure. Um, uh, let me let me throw this one at you. This is this is my. Well, first I said you said there a minute ago, and this is I'm going to restate what I said a minute ago. Um, okay. Can't Christianity can't be rationally grounded? Well, I said a minute ago that our experience is the ground, and so if Christianity is something other than our experience, then it's going to feel ungrounded. Um, Okay, hold on. So um, here, let me give you. Let me give you just a to be unpacked. Okay, unpacked. Here, this is this is. Uh, I don't know if this will work, but here you go. Uh, the Good Samaritan. Okay. So we're looking on the Good Samaritan there, and we've got a Levite and a priest, and the Levite and the priest both have a lot going on in their heads. Okay. They've got a lot of rationalizations, lots of propositional truths, lots of, lots of stuff. They've got an image, They've got an image of God. They might even be able to describe that image of God to you. And they'd be, you know, they'd be in the same team maybe, but they'd be set suddenly different. And the Samaritan, he's got something entirely different going on in his head. And we're to take the Samaritan as having the wrong vision, or at least in the context of the audience listening to this parable, the Samaritan has the wrong stuff going on in his head. And it includes all these things we've been talking about, right? And yet the Samaritan has this, this acts that there's a moment for the, for the relationship between the Samaritan and the, and the uh, victim that is the reality. And there is not a part of this parable a command to go and adjust what's going on in the head of the Samaritan. So the stuff that's going on in the head of the Samaritan is not meaningful. It's not important. It's not as important as the direct reality the experience this is what i mean by the experience of um, the the compassion and recognition of the pain and the suffering and the act of compassion through aid and that is if that isn't the grounding that is the grounding other stuff is not the ground and and so uh, i you know anyway so Hmm, hmm, okay. I don't know if that touches on anything that relates to what you're talking about, but it's the way I formulate this. And then I stretch that out across our broad experience of life. And I see all sorts of um, mirrors of that in the Christian narrative. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So I okay. see. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and so as I do that, it, it it's better in the Christian narrative than it is in the Stoic one, or it's better in the Christian narrative than the very gorgeous and elaborate and cool stuff that you find in Shakespeare. It's 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 better in that story. You have the Pietà, the mother and her child, and that is pathos of reality. You know, that is a direct reality. And so I don't know if that works. What go with that? Yeah, um, yeah. I think I think the radical orthodoxy people would be critical of of that kind of vision, um, because they would would sort of say it's it's a correlationist project, because um, they would say what we're trying to do is map aspects of experience onto um, you know, map aspects of common human experience onto the sort of Christian narrative and sort of try to show the, the, the ways they, they map onto each other. And, and that's in a way sort of, a, that's still in a way a, almost an apologetic or almost a sort of secular, um, that's, that's sort of still something that could be sort of, uh, um, argue maybe yeah you you probably want to push back on this but that's sort of still something that could be almost argued for on a um, sort of secular frame I um, sort of on a secular universal autonomous um, you could sort of still argue for it on this sort of neutral ground of common human experience I suppose yeah I wouldn't I, um, I, I would not say that I'd be able to create a, a fully rounded out uh, uh, a picture with what I just said, but I would push back on what you said and then I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be searching for a mapping and I wouldn't be trying to um, evangelize it. In other words, I wouldn't be trying to describe it for someone else other than you, of course. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but my, my point is I, it, it's, it's my own most experience. Um, and so in the end, it's, it's my, it's, 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 you know, it comes from within my direct experience. And Are you so sort of that's saying, its grounding. Um, and, and, I wouldn't, and I wouldn't be going to do some, oh, now I can map out my, my personal experience with these things. I, although it sounds like I was saying that a minute ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be building a structure on that. I would be just saying that, you know, the, You're, hmm. it, it appears to me to be true. It's, oh, okay. It, yeah. it describes, um, it describes um, reality, the best vision <laughs> yeah. of reality, or right. describes or, reality, um, or it just like just happens. It just happens to be that as I experience it, I note it as true. Mm, okay. Okay. Yeah, so. I, I see what you're doing there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I guess. Um, anyway. Yeah. So, so this, yeah, I, would, I, guess, I would, I guess, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm just, I was just going to say, I suppose, um, me, um, maybe following Kierkegaard would sort of say, um, like, I, ah, goodness, <laughs> is there any kind of, uh, hmm, 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 is that a leap of faith then, or, doesn't I, I guess you would say you're um, you're sort of uh, 
I am sure you hate these terms, but, <laughs> but your apologetic of experience doesn't get you all the way, but it's compelling enough and seems true enough for you enough um, for you to want to say, this is a story. Um, this is the story I want to live my life according to. Is, I would say is that, that I, yes, I, I would say that I would say yes, and then I would take it back. <laughs> that is, say I would say yes, you're right, and then I would say, but I but I resist the, the gap between. Okay, resist the gap. I, I resist the gap that would lead to the apologetic. That is to say, I I I, I chafe at the true enough because the true enough doesn't grounded enough in in the uh directness of my own contact with it um so you so i don't like the as though uh, the as though is a, is a is a deflationary notion and i don't want it I, I don't want i don't i don't live it as that deflationary notion so if oh, i say something to live it as deflation or let yeah. me push back i mean so, so i want to say that's what i meant by saying i would agree and then i want to take it back <laughs> that is to say i want to i i mean i what i was okay. trying to say sorry is um i would like to disentangle um truth and our ability to reach it to reach it um you know by any kind of rationality or apologetics or argument or, or anything like or empiricism or phenomenology I, I think i like to separate um what is true and whether or not we have a um how would you put it whether we have a cut in stone way of arriving at it i suppose like i i mean does that does that um what i would say to that things is up there's nothing that we have access to but our but our own experience there's nothing else that we have access to but our own okay experience. and and so anything that formulates outside of that anything that we try to do in this conversation or that i write in a book or somebody um it, it's ultimately gonna as long as you're okay as long as you notice its derivative nature um it's okay to do that that is to say, it's okay to explain, to rationalize, to do apologetics, to construct a theology, to say something like, I live as though, because it gets at, it points at a kind of, um, a kind of way of trying to communicate it and, and share it. But it doesn't, uh, but it doesn't, it never will be the, the grounding. The grounding will be that it is that in my experience. So love, Jesus is love. Okay, well, then for real, Jesus is love. <laughs> that is to say, when I'm in love, when I love somebody, when I really experience the love of my child or whatever, mm -hmm. there it is, that's it. Mm. And <clears throat> I don't know, does that, and then, and then you go all the way to the resurrection with that, okay? So, um, well, is, I guess is on the, on the vision you're describing here is the resurrection a historical event or is it, um, um, 
like I have experienced resurrection in my own life um, type of thing. This, uh, well, like how do we disentangle those two? Yeah, that's a, that's a, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have mentioned that because that's, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a toughie, man. That's a toughie. Um, well, I, I'm a phenomenologist and experience okay. is, is temporally bound. Okay. So that's, that is one part of what it, what it is to be an experiencer. That is to say to experience is that I come from my history, my past elaborates, yeah. it elaborates itself in my present. It, my present is in fact, the accumulation of my past. But my present is also the movement into the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, so embedded in my now is, is some possibility, some potential, some, some future. Mm -hmm. And part of that future is the crucifixion, which seems to be one of the more uh, reliable uh, futures that we can count on yeah <laughs> and yeah. um and beyond but 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 i but i am i find myself let's say in my direct experience i find myself already affirming my now my, my experience I, I find it to be the case that i am not a nihilist. I just find it to be that, that that is the case. The only way I can be a nihilist, the only way I can become um, that is by denying what, what I am, it turns out is, is given to me, which turns out to be an affirmation of my experience. And in that, and that's a direct, that's a thing I directly experience. That is to say, I directly experience the fact that, wow, I, I'm affirming what's happening here, despite all that, despite all in all. And in that is up into uh, Christ crucified, up into, and, and, and including Christ crucified. So now I'm using Christian ease here, but that implies the resurrection as a part of my direct experience now. Did that make any sense at all? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, somewhat, somewhat. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting if you decide to pick up the book and read it. Um, yep. You know, you could probably read, um, you know, chapter one or chapter two, and you'd already be, um, have a good sense of what uh, radical orthodoxy is about. It would be interesting to then have another discussion and see how, how you, how you put yourself in dialogue with radical orthodoxy and whether they have critiques for you and whether you have critiques for them and just have that whole dialogue. That would be an interesting discussion to have once, um, you know, once you've read the first few chapters. Yeah, I think I will. I, I do like uh, James K. Smith in his, in the form that I, I know him, which is that one book about Augustine. Um, and I, and I, mm -hmm. and that's going to be my next one. 
I, you know, I think I originally when you described it, I thought there were my maybe hints of, of alliance with radical orthodoxy in my thinking, but perhaps, perhaps not. We'll see. Still would be. Yeah, I suspect they might be critical, but, but yeah, that's, that would be an interesting discussion to have for sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, what are, what are some other, um, some other things, uh, you wanted to discuss, or I could suggest some other topics. Um, you mentioned so, had so many interesting things you brought up yeah. with Paul that we yeah. could, could dive on, down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I liked your, con you know, I, uh, the, the one comment that really struck me in your conversation with Paul was the one that I highlighted in a comment. I don't know if you saw that, but yeah, it was, it was, it was your plea essentially for a, for a non, um, you know, kind of exclusionary conversation, for a Christian conversation to be non-exclusionary, or I don't know how you'd re-express that, but that, that vision that you expressed there is something that I really do value and want to have an opening for, uh, for Christians to see that that's a more appropriate role for Christians in the culture. And, um, so I, um, I, I like that a lot. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was with, with my conversation with Paul. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Where you were, you were, mm -hmm. you were asking for a conversation. It, it was on the very touchy and, and difficult to navigate subject of, uh, LGBT, et cetera. Um, mm -hmm. remember mm -hmm. that part of it, but the, but the broader point, the general point was something that I, I, I definitely resonate with. I, I suppose what I was trying to say is, um, could there be some common ground that potential, this is very pretentious of me to, to, yeah. say, to say it this way because this is a very difficult issue between the conservatives and liberals on both sides of the issue. If we, um, you know, we can keep our respective notions of, um, you know, whether homosexuality or uh, is, is it a sin or not, and bracket that with the issue of, um, of including people and making them feel welcome. And I think the piece that, um, that, that was important for me was um, on how the, the culture wars turns um, the very people you're supposed to want to reach into political enemies. And I think this goes for both the right and the left, where, um, you know, people arguing for, for the right-wing political, um, you know, Christian, you know, right-wing Christian political warriors will sort of be alienating to um, those they see as their enemies, wars, you know, such as the, the LGBTQT people. But on the other hand, you have the, the, the you know Hillary Clinton's deplorables, and you know that's the class of people um, we can no longer associate with. These are the true enemies, and we have to. Uh, nothing they say can be listened to. They, they can't be accepted. They have to be annihilated, and and that type of. I would just love to see the Christian community um, raise rise beyond um, those kinds of partisan uh, divides and just love people for who they are. 
Um, absolutely. So I, I yeah, absolutely. I think that it does feel like a lost cause in our pertinent, our present situation. Um, but it's certainly the right ideal at least. Um, but I, I don't see a, I unfortunately don't see much of a path for that other than in individual communities, just acting it out and living it. Um, mm -hmm. um, so it's, that it's I wanted to it's highlight a, that point because I thought that was a very good point. Um, okay, what, what was some, some other, let's see if um, some other things you raised that I wanted to, to discuss. Um, we, we, we really, um, hit on almost everything I wanted to hit on that came up during your conversation. Yeah. Um, I guess a, a question I had for you, I don't know, but I don't know if you'd have an answer for this, but what's, uh, you have a theory or why do you think Christianity is not an option for secular people today? Will you point to maybe, um, uh, you know, Charles Taylor's work um, or, or what do you think is, is the reason i mean part of what makes me ask is uh there's such diversity of christian churches you're basically trying so many different experiments to draw people in from you know completely resist the culture to completely um assimilate to the culture and everything in between that uh, why is why is Christianity still not an option for for secular people, either in its um, traditionalist or, or liberal forms or, or stuff in between? What do you think? Um, what do you think that is? I guess what, what would be some of the big uh, factors you would point to? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sound um, I don't know what this will sound like, but I do think. There was someone in this conversation surrounding Charles Taylor at some point along the way that said, and I think this was a preacher of some some note who said, you know, it's not the atheists that I worry about. It's not the new atheists. It's That's not the, the, the thing that I see out there that's making it hard for Christianity to hold on to its, um, you know, its position or to grow it's indifference. And, mm. um, and I would take that to another level. And this, I, I'm not quite sure how much I believe this. And I'm, and I'm worried that it's going to sound very, I don't know what it's going to sound like, but the, um, the reason Christianity is faltering is that it's no longer necessary. That is to say uh, yeah. it, a lot of what Christianity used to offer that were so foundationally and foundationally necessary are being played by other institutions. Mm -hmm. and, and Christianity itself has failed to, to, to um, kind of carve out a substantial um, way in which it is invaluable or relevant i guess or, maybe yeah or relevant, relevant is not quite the right word but yeah i i am i am i came from a secular uh, uh origin in my upbringing and i went into a, what turns out to be a very secular profession medicine almost you know almost all of the my peers 
are, uh, are, are, you know, not, they're not atheists. Well, if you pinned them down, they probably would say they were atheists, but they are not, they're non the They don't, they don't see the need. It doesn't, mm -hmm. it doesn't, they don't have a draw to go to that for sustenance or some sort of, you know, something. And a lot of them live perfectly fine, happy, what appear to be by general judgments, perfectly fine, happy, fulfilling, fruitful lives by doing so. Mm -hmm. And so the question of relevance is now for me, it, it's deeply relevant because of my own circumstance. And certainly for my family, it's, it's got that same reality because of our particularity, the particularity of our world, uh, which I could describe for you, but we are, we are, we are Christians. We, we, my family has been, you know, my wife's family is Christian. My kids were raised Christian. My two daughters are married to pastor's kids. There's, you know, we, I, I have a, not adopted it, but I've moved into it with full, um, um, you know, commitment and reality for myself. It is our, it is our world and I am blessed to, to be, be there. But I don't, but I look at some of my colleagues and they're doing the things that they're doing and living the lives that they're living and, and I don't see them as needing it. Now, I don't, <laughs> what would you I, say I to that? <laughs> that? That's, I don't that's know a, if that's, that's a valid point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the question, um, one feels the urge to ask, um, it, you know, I, I want to bracket this because this isn't, this isn't exact, this isn't how I feel about Christianity, but I think this is the question. Um, yeah, I, I think even Christians struggled with this to some degree is what is Christianity for um, in, in the secular context? And this gets to the, the pastor, Paul, uh, you know, from, from the Andrew Root book, the pastor has, has right, the question right. of what is my job about? What am I trying to accomplish? Right. What is the church for? What is my job supposed to be? Um, and it, it, like you said, the, the, these replaced institutions, um, you know, is Christianity about... Um, feeding the sick, uh, no, no, feeding the, the homeless, caring for the sick, is it about um, social justice? You know, you have these institutions like the hospitals, the charities, the social justice movement that is, that is um, addressing a lot of these concerns. And the Christianity that sort of narrowly focuses on social justice just seems to be a redundant institution, like we can get this elsewhere. Um, and then you have a different um, different vision where Christianity is about um, fire insurance. But how do you sort of present that in a, in a world that, that doesn't believe in hell? Um, then there are sort of different visions in between. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the apologist sort of has the easy way out where um, he'll say, you know, the reason you should be a Christian is because it is true. It's, it dis it's, it's a list of facts that correspond to reality. Um, 
which I suppose is one way of doing it, but the problem becomes that this framing it that way, which, which I wouldn't disagree with because I do think um, Christianity is true in, in that sort of a way as well. But I think um, it, it, it seems to twist Christianity into something it isn't. And, and it doesn't um, go anywhere in a conversation with, with the people I'm describing. Yeah. Doesn't I mean, even get, doesn't um, even, doesn't even, you don't even get a half a sentence in. Yeah, before, yeah before it, that. totally. I mean, <laughs> why the, the, it doesn't even get to the question because the question right. is, why should I become right. a Christian? Like it, does, it needs to engage people subjectively. Um, that's the real question, I think. I mean, so what if, if Jesus, um, uh, you know, so what if, if Jesus was the son of God? Um, what does that have to do with, with, my, with my comfortable existence here and now? Like, it needs to engage someone subjectively. And, um, and, and the, only the, thing the, is, Protestant, the only thing the Protestant can come back with is it's kind of boils the Protestant. I, I take this is going to be sound critical of, of Protestantism in general, but it boils down to a kind of, if all those other things go away, it boils down to a singularity, a singularity, which is that you have to believe or else you are lost. And that's all there is. Yes, that's, that's it. That, that is all it's there singular, is. It's yeah. all there is. And can't even, can't even fill in the blank of believe what. You know, it's, it's just, that's it. And if you're not, if you haven't, you know, if you're not, uh, if you don't, if, if you don't have a, whatever, if you don't have this singular and then, experience and you can't, you know, accept Jesus, I mean, all the, all the phraseology that's attached to this singularity, uh, then that's, that's the only thing that there is, offered a person a person who would sort of present that kind of a vision is in a very easy spot with regards to the secular age because it can just um keep throwing that in your face so to speak like he like he can say believe this or um you're going through hell and then you retort with why should i believe it and it just repeat it right it's, exactly it's a brute fact that that is wielded and doesn't even need to be argued for because it has its sort of internal consistency and a sort of um, Pascal wager type of deal where if you sort of present arguments against it, um, he can just throw out the grand what if. Um, so, so yeah, it's I like the way you put it. It's just this, this singular singularity. This, this is just brute fact that remains. Um, yeah, uh, but and, and that's the that, you know that argues compelling for, force, right? But it doesn't have any compelling force, right? Because it's because it's kind of and, empty. It's kind of a, a beam of light. It's got, it's just like that's all it is. And it's not a lived. And, and, it's not a lived experience. Uh, which would and in a that, sense so, it. Oh, sorry, sorry. But I was going to say I mean, you keep going. this is where I have this is where I this is where my intuition or my kind of heart of hearts gravitates towards you know. Uh, towards orthodoxy or gravitates towards Jonathan Pajot and the, and the world of that, of that practice. You know, I think Protestants need to turn down the importance of the sermon. 
It needs to be half as long and half as important to the whole experience or more than that. Um, because, mm-hmm. and, and, and you're living a life, perhaps, I don't know what, what, how the Hutterites live, but, but it has to be a lived experience. And so if just, just if you're going to take the experience of, of going to church and having an experience at church, it needs to be a well-rounded thing. And I'm not saying that, that it's always that way in the, in the Protestant world, but um, anyway, I don't know. Mm. I, I deviated myself there a little bit. But. That's, yeah, that's, mm. well, um, I, guess, I guess that's why the postmodern context um, gives you a bit more, uh, it does give it a bit more, uh, give you the opportunity to, um, to make Christianity a bit more um, compelling for the average person because when this sort of neutral objective rationality is deconstructed and you have these competing visions, you get into this realm of which is the more beautiful vision of reality of life. And uh, I think like, like um, Pope Benedict once said, the, 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 the greatest resource the church has is its saints and its art, where these, these beautiful lives lived and, and this beautiful uh, reality that, that this art attests to is, is, is an indirect, non-coercive apologetic on its own, I guess. Right. And, and, and now to, to backtrack on my harsh, but how comment, to, harsh comments to, about to, Protestantism. There are plenty of kind of Protestant churches that are great thriving communities and are attractive. You know, they have, they have, they have yeah. families, they have, they have, they have, you know, intergenerational relationships that are maintained that don't really, that aren't offered anywhere else in the culture. There's, mm-hmm. there's, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's interfamilial connections of, of people taking care of other people's children and caring for them and expressions of, of love and caring across all the borders and boundaries of, of our culture. And, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean stained stained glass and and cathedrals um, to be beautiful, to be a beautiful image of a, of a lived life. So, you know, so there I am taking, I'm taking back my my, uh, critique. Yeah. I, I definitely see see the point you were you were making, um, where this is something I was thinking about when with with regards to what you were saying about um, you know experience being primary. This this strange um, abstraction. Okay, I, I want to bracket this. I'm going to sound more reductive than than I intend because I think this is this is something that uh, that gets which is a bit of a tired horse to beat but sort of this retreat into the abstract doctrinal um, believe these propositions um, type of Christianity where it's the the doctrines are abstracted from the lived reality and uh, okay, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with doctrine, but uh, but the point about of doctrine is that this is the reality 
and the narrative that you and the community you are a part of are becoming a part, are, are living into, right? You're, you're living into the kingdom of God with, with Christ as the king. And, and these are all propositional statements, but they need to be grounded in the experience of, you know, you, you talked about, you know, that's what's beautiful about, about um, Catholicism or orthodoxy is that these propositions are grounded in this lived experience. I mean, it's, you take the, the Hutterite situation where um, we, we put a much greater emphasis on um, the lived faithful life and the propositions we do have find their expression in, um, in your everyday existence where, um, where, you know, take, take the, the, um, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in, in God the Father. This is, this is the, the horizon of the Christian life. This is the narrative. This is the framework. This is, um, like, okay, Kierkegaard has this amazing quote on, on, on the resurrection where he says, how do you believe in the resurrection? You can't sort of have this historical argument. What you need is to... Um, live your life as a Christian and then you will find that you need the resurrection to survive. That's, right. that's the way propositions and reality need to touch each other. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to, yeah, totally. If, if you end up thinking, you know, this is kind of was the point of my comment that it, propositions, doctrines, descriptions of faith, even right down to all, you know, all the, uh, um, collaborations and accoutrements of the church itself are are fine as as long as they are recognized that as as um not an of in itself of the, the way i would put it that's it. right they, uh, they aren't the ground <laughs> the ground is the lived life and and then and then the, the fruits the flowering or whatever i don't you know um yeah i don't i that's 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 exactly the way I feel about it. Um, th that story that uh, that Paul told way back about his friend who who's there was a death in a, of a parent in a family and this other family just uh, I think they this other couple just picked up and moved to where this family was and and essentially raised or, yeah. or supported raising one of the children. Um, you know, there's nothing else. There's there's nothing else beyond that. I mean, if it if it if it isn't that, then what is it? You know. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that that's a good. You know, that you're getting very close to my my version of Christian faith right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's that's um. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good. Okay. Let's see. I, this is this is great, Julian. I I think I I got. My family's coming over to get together here pretty soon, and uh, but I really appreciate you getting in right. touch with me, and I'm glad that I'm glad that you kind of got some interest out of my conversation. And this was great. This was a this was one of the better sideline conversations I've had. It really got oh, us great. a lot of a lot of different places that were important to me, and, and allowed me to say things about the way I think about things that I haven't felt like there was the opportunity to reach into in other circumstances. Yeah, yeah. So I, pre exactly. I appreciate that. Okay. Yeah, this was great for me too. And um, I, I managed, I, 
I'm glad we we got to circle around some some topics I've been wanting to to explore more in depth and and, and your conversation with Paul um you realized that you were the perfect conversation partner so so yeah thanks this yeah. has been great all right I'm going to start into that book and then maybe uh, down the road I'll send you an email and we can uh, we can do it again perfect okay all right later. my friend see you later bye-bye